Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Uh, if you're with us this morning and don't have a Bible, we encourage you to use a blue pew Bible in front of you, and you can find Luke 1 on page 855. We're now in the midst of our season of Advent. It's our second week of this season of preparation where we reflect first on the coming of Jesus in the flesh as a baby, but as we spoke about last week, that this is also um, a season of anticipation for the coming of Christ as King a second time, and that we in the church are still in a season of waiting, waiting for the King to come in glory and reign on earth as it is in heaven. And so this year for our series, uh, we're, we're calling our Advent series, Waiting Well. All of us are going to be waiting in this world, but how do we wait well? How does this time of waiting increase our hope in our Savior and then propel us to live the kind of lives that God has called us and equipped us to live here? And so last week we began in Psalm 40 when David proclaimed, I waited patiently for the Lord. And we learned together what's it look like to wait patiently as the people of God. And now we turn to the New Testament. And specifically, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for the next uh, few weeks heading into Christmas Eve. And uh, there are, in the New Testament, in the Bible, there are four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what they are are essentially four biographical portraits of the person and work of Jesus. And so I I think of that word portraits, um, that if this morning I would say I'm I'm going to select four people to paint a picture of the stage uh, during the sermon. And we're going to put the first person in the first uh, pew on the front left side here. And then the second person we're going to put in the far back right side of the sanctuary. Uh, there'll be a third person. We'll put them in the back row of the balcony to, to paint a portrait. And then the fourth, we're going to put somebody behind me and kind of paint um, the, the whole kind of sanctuary from that perspective. What you would get at the end are four portraits of one scene. And they would all be true, but they would all bring to it its perspective and its unique characteristics of those who are painting um, at the end of the day. And that, that, that's a good word picture to think about the Gospels. The, the Gospels are four true portraits of one Jesus Christ, and yet it is spoken about from four different vantage points, uh, four different perspectives. And so of those four, there are two that give the, uh, the birth narrative of Jesus, what we kind of traditionally know as the Christmas story, and that is Matthew and Luke. Uh, Beyond that, Luke is the only gospel writer who actually writes about two birth narratives that are intertwined together at the start. And so you have the birth narrative of Jesus, but then you also have this story of a baby who would be named John, who we uh, often refer to and would go on to be known as John the Baptist. And all four gospels talk about John's story, but only Luke tells the story of his birth. And the story of his parents, this couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And most of the time, um, kind of in in my view, the the emphasis is often put on Zechariah in this couple. Zechariah was the priest. Zechariah is one who went into the temple and heard from the angel. And then he would sing a prophetic song about his newborn son. But this morning, I want to shine the light on Elizabeth. I want to emphasize Elizabeth. Because Elizabeth is someone who waited well. And we should thank God for her. And by God's grace, we should all seek to emulate her in our lives. 
And so that's where we're going to go this morning, and we're going to read uh, different portions of Luke chapter 1. I'm not going to read all of Luke 1, but we're going to read the ones that particularly spotlight Elizabeth, and then I'll summarize the sections in between. But we're going to start with um, Luke 1, verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. All right, this morning we're going to see four ways that Elizabeth shows us how to wait well. Starting with number one, waiting in peace. Waiting in peace. Um, so Luke, the, the author of this gospel, he, he was a doctor by vocation. And he was not himself an eyewitness of Jesus, uh, but he set out to write a, uh, what you could call a scientific, kind of well-researched account that spoke to a lot of the sources and the eyewitnesses and then put that down into what he called an orderly account about Jesus and his life. And what becomes clear right out of the gate in Luke is that he had access to or chose to spotlight certain sources that the other three gospel writers did not. And one of the ways we know this is because how much in his gospel Luke focused on marginalized people groups of the day compared to the other three. And two of those groups in particular being uh, the poor and then women. First century Rome was an extremely patriarchal society where women were often voiceless, powerless, and treated less than compared to men. And so we see right out of the gate, Luke starting his gospel going against the grain because he doesn't just share about Zechariah and his family history, but he also is careful and detailed enough to share about Elizabeth and her family, where she came from, what her lineage was. That Elizabeth is from the family of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother, uh, the first high priest. Meaning, this woman, Elizabeth, came from a family of priests. And then she married a priest. And we know that just because you're a priest or a pastor or come from a pastor's family, it doesn't mean that everything's just automatically good and healthy in your family or in that person's life. That was true both then. It is certainly true now. But Luke is quick to affirm both were righteous before God. Again, not just talking about Zechariah. He's putting Elizabeth right alongside Zechariah and saying both were righteous before God. So you might ask then, okay, well, what does that mean? Luke tells us right away. They were blameless and walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. All right, so right out of the gate, this is high praise for this couple. This is a solid couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. You have a priest who himself is from a family of priests, who married a woman who's from a family of priests. And they loved God. And they walked in obedience to God. Um, when Luke says that they were blameless, he doesn't mean that they were sinless or without sin. But rather, they were genuinely doing this. They were genuinely following, following after the Lord, walking with the Lord. They took their time seriously took their faith seriously in a time when most people within Israel weren't. It had been 400 years since anyone in Israel has heard directly from the Lord. And many, as we would go on to read in the Gospels, including much of the leadership, would stray from the Lord by this time. But Zechariah and Elizabeth, 
Solid couple. And then verse 7, Luke writes, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Here's what Luke wants us to know, that Elizabeth was righteous and childless. And the clear implication is that not only is she childless, but she is beyond the years of childbearing. Um, I read one commentator who said that that phrasing that Luke used, advanced in years, is typically uh, a phrase given to people who are north of the age of 60. So, so Zechariah and Elizabeth are advanced in years, and they are childless. And, and then this is what is most often looked about Elizabeth. She was still waiting, but she was waiting in peace, meaning... At this point, she was not waiting for a child any longer. That time was past. But her resolve and her waiting did not waver. She was waiting for ultimate deliverance, even though she had come to peace with the fact that she did not get what she wanted in life. It's often overlooked with Elizabeth that she was no longer waiting for a child but that she was at peace with the fact that she was still close to God even though she had not gotten what she had wanted in life. And, and so it might be fair to ask, well, how do you know she even struggled with being childless? Maybe she didn't struggle. Well, as we'll see um, in a little bit down in verse 25, Elizabeth herself indicates that she has been disgraced by others. She was shamed for being childless. And, and, and so the assumption from others that she must be punished, being punished by God. Because, look, she is childless. And so she felt this disgrace. She felt that shame towards her. And now, advanced in years, Elizabeth was not living a righteous life, was not walking blamelessly in order to get something from God. She was living a righteous life in the midst of the grief because of her trust in God. It's so important. That she is waiting in peace, not to get something from him, because, but rather due to her trust in him. We, we know it was true in that time, I, I, and I think what I'm about to say is still true today, and I would even go on a limb to say that this can be even more true in what you would call Christian or church circles, is that women are often seen and valued not for who they are first and foremost, but for what they can produce for society. There's an African biblical scholar named Tsukumbo Adimayo. Super insightful here in his commentary on this passage for me. I love his commentary because it removes me from a purely kind of Western context. Uh, he, he says that this is probably true in, in every culture in its own way, but it's particularly true in African culture, that a woman's value is predominantly measured in the role of childbearing. And he's got a piercing quote in his commentary that says, a, a, quote, a woman who is barren is considered as shamed, as no better than a girl. That that's a common quote within his culture, and, and, and it kind of speaks to what I think uh, translates across cultures, that, uh, that, that women are often not valued for the humanity they have in themselves, but rather for what they can produce. I know there are several couples that we have walked with and are currently walking with here at Grace, that we are praying for and, and walking with them through the pain of infertility. 
a few years ago, there was several women who began a group here called Hopeful Family, a group that still meets now monthly together, a group that meets for fellowship and to pray together, to grieve together, to strengthen one another in the midst of that pain. And what we know is that that is a stigma that still very much exists on varying levels, that women are valued and kind of seen primarily for what they are expected to produce, namely children. Beyond infertility, um, there's different layers that this pain can manifest itself. I'm not saying that women are the only ones that carry this pain, but I think women's in their embodied nature um, and the, some of the stigmas feel this pain and this shame uh, more than men. Uh, the pain of miscarriage, of, of loss, the pain of, of regret or guilt from an abortion. Um, there's a stigma of, of single women who never get married, that something must have gone wrong, that they've failed. There are married women who've never had children, maybe for infertility or maybe not for that reason. But there's, there's a pain or a stigma associated with that. There are layers here that maybe some of you have had to work through, maybe more than we know. And including being on the receiving end of many comments or questions from family or friends or even strangers who by their questioning indicate that your value is connected to what or how many children you have. And the very fact that that's often so quick to be asked of them, of how many children do you have? Or how many are you going to have? Are you going to have more? And that, or, or haven't you been trying? Or, or aren't you going to get married? That there's these questions, that these women's values, not primarily in who they are, but primarily in what they can produce. So Elizabeth was subjected to not only the pain that her and Zechariah were not able to grow their family through childbirth, but was also subject to the stigma and disgrace of others Around them, And yet again, here's what's so important for us. That Elizabeth did not allow that pain of unanswered prayer to harden her against the Lord. Or to embitter her against the Lord. To weaken her faith. She did not devalue herself in God's eyes even as others around her devalued her. But she remained steadfast and close to him. Elizabeth was at peace with God because of her trust in God. And knowing that her God would not turn away from her. Her God was not punishing her. He sees her for who she is and her full humanity and values and affirms her. And so Elizabeth models well for us how we can live at peace with God in our hearts whether that is a circumstance that you can resonate with or if there's any real circumstance or trial, something that you've been waiting for and maybe you're beyond the point of hope that there's a real struggle in your life relationally, financially, physically, emotionally, that Elizabeth models well how to live with peace, with God in your heart, even if you live with no peace with the world in your body. Well, from here, Luke will record that Elizabeth's husband would go into the temple. And there, Zechariah would come before the angel, of, uh, angel named Gabriel. And Gabriel will tell him, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall name him John, for he will be great before the Lord. 
But apparently, the angel is referring to a prayer of the past that Zechariah long stopped praying. Because again, they were advanced in years. And we know that because Zechariah did not believe him. He asked, how? We're, we're old. That time's past. We stopped praying that prayer. Gabriel says that God is not bound by age or circumstance. He essentially says, Zechariah, oh, it's, 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 it's going to happen, whether you like it or not. He doesn't say, hey, never mind, Zechariah, you blew it. I'm going to go to the next guy. No, he says, no, Zechariah, this is going to happen. But since you did not believe it, you will be silent. You will be unable to speak until this takes place. And then we're going to pick it up now, down at verse 22 and read to 25. And when he came out, meaning came out of the temple, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Second way Elizabeth models how to wait well is waiting with thankfulness. Number two, waiting with thankfulness. You know, we, we, we don't know what Elizabeth's response was when Zechariah first showed up at the house. I would love to be a fly on the wall, right, when he came home. Can't speak. I'm sure it was a little frustrating for her. Like, what are you doing? We don't have time for this. But we do know that in time, they came together. And Elizabeth conceived by the power of God, according to the promise of God, and then Luke gives a peculiar detail, I wonder if you caught it, that Elizabeth kept herself hidden for five months, but we're not told why. And even in my research and curiosity, there's no real consensus out there um, as to the reason. Um, perhaps it was a combination of the way others have uh, shamed her in the past, and since Zechariah couldn't speak, she didn't want to deal with how people would react, she just didn't want to deal with that mess. Maybe she was so overwhelmed and wanted to just have that time with her and the Lord and process with him. Maybe there was just practical health reasons that it would not have been safe to go out being newly pregnant at her age until a certain time. So we're not even told why after five months she no longer kept herself hidden if it, um, or what that had to do with. But Luke is, tells us why. So you can surmise that on your own. Uh, give me your theories. I heard a couple after the 9 a.m. Good theories um, as to why Luke included that. But in some ways, it's really not all that important because what is most important to notice is that now she is waiting in a different capacity. She is waiting now for the birth of her son and she knows exactly where to direct her praise for this blessing. She says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. Think about these first two points together. Elizabeth waited on the Lord in peace when she did not have what she wanted. And now she waits on him with thanksgiving for her blessing. Uh, this reminds me of another woman uh, named Elizabeth that many of you might be familiar with. That is Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of a missionary, Jim Elliot, who was killed in South America in the 1950s as he and a few other men sought to bring the gospel to an unreached people group and were killed. 
Elliot would go on to write several books. Um, there, there's a couple cool connections of Elizabeth Elliot, who uh, passed, I think, within the last decade. A couple cool connections with Grace Church with her. Um, Scott Sundin, who grew up at Grace, his mother, uh, went to Wheaton with Elizabeth Elliot. Um, and then my mom, who grew up on the mission field in Kenya, uh, my grandparents were with African Inland Mission. Uh, they often uh, would have Elizabeth Elliot over because her second husband had a connection with them, and she would often be around the table. So my mom grew up having Elizabeth Elliot, not really even knowing the magnitude of who she was at their dinner table and getting to know her. She herself would go on to write several books, including a book called Suffering is Never for Nothing. The title itself is good. The book is even better. I want to read one passage, and it'll be up on the screen. Elizabeth, Elizabeth writes, I'm convinced that there is nothing that can happen to me in this life that is not precisely designed by a sovereign Lord to give me the opportunity to learn to know him. It is always possible to be thankful for what is given rather than to complain about what is not given. One or the other becomes a habit of life. We saw this last week in Psalm 40. We see it now again in Luke 1. How vital a role gratitude plays in the midst of our waiting. That gratitude is chosen before it is felt for the people of God. That gratitude is chosen before it is felt. And God empowers his people to walk in gratitude in all circumstances. And so if we kind of put the mirror up on our own lives, uh, we, we can understand that um, we, we can kind of fall off this path in a couple different ways. Um, we could fail to be marked by gratitude in times of struggle, where there are seasons of loss and, or seasons of waiting, and we don't get what we're waiting, and we drift from God because we don't get what we want. God, we wanted this. We have not been given this. And so we drift from God as a result of not getting what we wanted. Or we can also fail to be marked by gratitude when things are given to us, when we do receive blessing where you kind of get something that you've yearned for, and once you got it, you kind of felt, I don't really need God anymore. And you would not say that, but there starts to be this drift that you're not yearning for him like you used to because you got what you wanted, and now you start to even think that I kind of earned some of this, and yeah, God helped, but, but I got myself to where I need to be. I put myself in the right position, and there could be this sense where once I get blessed by God, now I start to drift. What I want us to see is that Elizabeth did neither of those things. She waited in peace when she struggled and walked blamelessly with the Lord. And now as a child grows within her, she's waiting with thanksgiving. But either way, she knew, I got to stay close to him. I'm staying close to him. Well, from here, Luke goes on to share how the angel Gabriel approached another woman in Luke 1. This time, it was a teenage girl named Mary, and he announced to her that she, too, will be with child. What's even more amazing is that she will become pregnant as a virgin. And as the Spirit hovers over her and creates life in her. And so if you think about it, now Mary is facing disgrace from the community as well, but for the exact opposite reason as Elizabeth. Elizabeth felt disgrace because she was advanced in years with no child. Now Mary is receiving disgrace because she's pregnant as a teenager before she is married. 
And Mary does not hide. She does not even feel safe in her own community. She flees her hometown. Where does Mary go? That's where we're going to pick it up. Back down in Luke 1, verse 39, read to 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Number three, the third way Elizabeth shows us how to wait well is waiting with missional purpose. Waiting with missional purpose. Um, maybe I'm biased because I've been studying you know, and immersed in this passage over the last couple of weeks. But I think this is one of the, if not the, most overlooked passages in the birth narratives that we read and look at during Advent year to year. Here's what's most incredible about Elizabeth and that we should take note of. Um, that because she was in a healthy place with the Lord, both in her grieving and in her blessing, she was now equipped for God to work through her in speaking life into others. That because she had a healthy posture before the Lord, now God can work through her and use her to speak life into others, to live with missional purpose while she waits. Last week in Psalm 40, we talked about the missional impact of obedience while you wait. How God uses your obedience to be a mission and impact to others. And now we see the missional purpose we can have while we wait. And what this sparks is the longest interaction and dialogue recorded amongst women in the Gospels. Is right here in Luke 1. Again, going back to the fact that Luke, in writing his account, had access to sources, that there were sources uh, within God's people that uh, recorded this conversation, that remembered this conversation, that passed it along, so that in his research he came across those who knew this interaction between Elizabeth and Mary, and he intentionally chose to center and spotlight women in an era when women would not be spotlighted. And he starts with it. The B.D. Anabwile, a pastor down in Washington, D.C., and his commentary on Luke writes this. I don't have it on the screen. But he says, Luke does not begin his gospel with a full-grown Jesus. Or even with an infant Jesus. Luke begins his gospel in the wombs of two women. In doing so, Luke tells us about the dignity and importance of pregnancy and unborn children. So while this certainly was going against the grain in the first century... Palestine, this is not the first time in the Bible where we see this happen. So in the Old Testament, there are several what you could call birth narratives, stories of certain men and women being born. I think the most well-known is that of Moses in Exodus 1 and 2. Moses being the man that God would raise up and send to eventually free his people from slavery in Egypt. And in chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus, Pharaoh put out a decree to all the Hebrew midwives that all male babies within the Hebrew people were to be put to death immediately upon being born. 
So you give birth, and midwives are there. If it's a baby boy, you have to kill it. They're multiplying too fast. It's getting out of control. So this was a decree from Pharaoh to all the Hebrew midwives. And then the text says that there's two midwives named Shipra and Pua. And you know what's so great is that we never even get Pharaoh's name in Exodus, but we get the names of Shipra and Pua. And they're given this command from Pharaoh, but they didn't follow it. Why? It's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, Exodus 1, 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So here's what happens. Pharaoh starts to notice. There's a bunch of male babies around. And, and so he brings in Shipra and Pua, and he interrogates them as to, hey, why are there still male children around? And so Shipra and Pua say, uh, well, you see, Pharaoh, the Egyptian women are so vigorous. They're strong women. And they give birth even before we show up. Like, they don't even give us time to show up. They're just doing it on their own. And Pharaoh, because he's a guy, and an idiot, just goes, oh, shoot. Like, dang it. Uh, and, and so he's now got to come up with a plan B to carry out his decree. But Shipper and Pua come before him, stand before him, and then Exodus 1 says, and God dealt well with the midwives. And they revered God more than they feared man. This would lead to the safe birth of Moses who would go on to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt. And I don't have time for this, but then Pharaoh had plan B. Remember what plan B was? Okay, now all male children get thrown into the Nile River. And we'll kill them that way. And then you had two more women, Moses' mother and Moses' sister, plan amongst themselves a way to uh, put Moses into the river in a basket that would lead to his protection and ultimately God's providential grace upon him to then raise him up to use him to be the one who would save his people from enslavery to Pharaoh. And now, 2,000 years later, it's two women again, spotlighted in their faithfulness to listen to God, to obey God, regardless of the results, to fear him above man and bring forth the promises of God, primarily through the process of pregnancy and childbirth, to defy King Herod now, who Luke introduced us to in verse 5, King Herod, who, like Pharaoh, was a brutal leader. We know that from history and the Bible. Vindictive leader. Paranoid as all get out. Uh, One old uh, saying from the Roman Empire says that it was safer to be Herod's uh, pig than his son. Would eliminate any threat to his power and would lead him to make a decree of his own that we know in Matthew chapter 2. And so a little bit of a side note here, but I hope important to say is that over the past 2,000 years of church history, uh, sadly, even amongst Christian circles and church circles for large amounts of times and places and still in some ways present today, is the um, habit of depowering and devaluing women amongst the people of God. But I want you to hear me say that when you see that happen or hear that happen or read about that happening, that is despite the Bible and not because of it. Because in the biblical story, amongst the people of God, both men and women are essential to every aspect of God's plan for redemption and multiplication. And at no point across human history 
have women been unnecessary or not essential to the work of God in this world? That today, men and women are distinct from, yet dependent upon one another in the work of making disciples in the local church. And so at Grace Church, we will not be faithful nor effective in our work in making disciples and making Christ known without the essential gifting and presence of women in meaningful roles. All right, well, Mary shows up at Elizabeth's door after fleeing her hometown. That's why Luke, again, with his details, says she went with haste. She went quickly to the hill country. And she's scared. She's nervous. And God uses Elizabeth to speak life into her. Have you ever considered that this could have very well been the first time Mary was celebrated since she got pregnant. We know Joseph didn't believe her. It's not hard to imagine. Her parents didn't believe her or any of the people in their community, which is why she felt the need to flee. And now she shows up at Elizabeth's door, and she's not questioning her. She's not throwing shade at her. She's not suspicious. No, she said, Mary, before I even saw you, when I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb leaped for joy because of you. And she goes on to speak courage into Mary's story. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord was spoken to her from the Lord. Uh, again, I want to reference Adamayo here. Um, what, what Elizabeth did was she bestowed honor onto Mary. And our Western context often does not have the full framework and force of what honor does in some other cultures that have more of an honor culture. So we might not, again, appreciate it at first glance. But um, quoting Adamayo here, this one is on the screen. He says, Honor is the positive value someone has in her or his own eyes which is accompanied by a positive appreciation of that person by her or his social group. That is, that's what it is to feel honor, to be honored. An internal view of yourself before the Lord, of being valued, combined with the external affirmation of those who are closest to you, being showed honor. And Elizabeth, in a single line, showed Mary honor. And it changed everything for Mary. It is this line where she believed in herself fully, maybe for the first time. It is this line that filled her with the confidence and resolve to move forward with the pregnancy and God's calling on her life. It is this line that led her to literally sing coming off of her interaction with Elizabeth. For right after those verses we read, Mary has her song, the famous song called the Magnificat, that she sang because of the courage that was spoken into her by Elizabeth. And so as we read the gospel, we need to remember, you don't have Jesus without Mary, but I think you don't have Mary without Elizabeth. I imagine that many of you can resonate with God using someone at a critical point in your life, to play a similar role. Someone, who, when you were at a crossroads, that God used, whether they knew it or not, to speak life into you. A parent, a coach, a friend, maybe a child, who said something, and often it's just a line, that enabled you to believe in yourself. 
On the flip side, unfortunately, we also know and tend to remember the times when someone told you you can't do something, who caused you to doubt yourself or to who you can be or your value. And so it's just a good reminder for us that when you are waiting for the Lord, you can be used for missional purpose or for destruction. And often all it takes is a line. It can be a real blessing in how God can use us to speak into others' lives. Elizabeth was used by God to speak life in the midst of her waiting. All right, we got one left. Back to Luke 1. We're going to go down to verse 57 and read to 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all of these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. All right, final point of how Elizabeth enables us to wait well and empowers us is waiting in confidence. You know, this is the final time Elizabeth is mentioned in the Bible. After Luke 1, she disappears. But make no mistake that her legacy will reverberate through the rest of the gospel story. And her final note, the final thing we hear from her, is a confident, unwavering commitment to the Lord. So she gives birth, and apparently according to the custom of the day, a circumcision was planned at their home on the eighth day. And it's something that all their neighbors would come to, and all their friends would come to celebrate with them. And I would imagine they're the talk of the town. Elizabeth had a baby. After all that waiting, advanced in years. So I imagine this is even a bigger crowd than normal. And the reality and the expectation is they had a baby and it's a baby boy. And his name's going to be Zechariah after daddy. What a blessing for him. He gets to carry forward his family name now. After all these years of waiting, praise God. Solid couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. There was no doubt what his name would be. And yet Elizabeth, without missing a beat, says no. His name is John. Uh, she either knew this directly from the Lord who revealed it to her, or somehow Zechariah managed to communicate that to her at some point during the pregnancy. I'm sure they had to talk once in a while uh, while he was mute this entire time, and that she knew that his name is John. But then, don't we get a little insight into the voiceless power of women in the day? Do you see what happened? They tried to pull rank on her. They were like, oh, Elizabeth, that's cute. That's a cute name, John. Uh, hey, Zechariah, what will this boy be called? Totally not believing her, trusting her. They want to know, hey, Daddy, what do you want to call your son? But she didn't budge. Take note of this. She didn't succumb to the pressures of others to fall in line with the norm. 
She stayed in line with her convictions of what the Lord wanted her to do. And Zechariah, in his own right, in obedience to the Lord, vindicates her and writes on a tablet, his name is John. Elizabeth knew the Lord had his hand upon her son, had a plan for her son. And, and I'm sure Elizabeth didn't know exactly how this was going to play out. She, she didn't know where things were going to go from here. I'm sure she wondered with the rest, that final line in Luke 1, what then will this child be? But ultimately, she knew she can trust the Lord with her son. And she could wait in confidence to see this plan unfold. But you know, of everything Elizabeth would do and model in Luke chapter 1, from waiting in peace, with thankfulness, with missional purpose, and in confidence, the simplest and most powerful proclamation she made is, Jesus is Lord. And she spoke it when Mary came to visit her. That when she said that, man, I, she knew that was a gift from above. She asked, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord comes to visit me? You, you know, many people, have you heard people say that Peter was the first one to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ in the Gospels? Have you heard that? Because Matthew 16, Mark 8, when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. That's not true, though. Peter was the first of the 12 disciples to say that Jesus was the Christ but not the first person. That belongs to Elizabeth, who was filled with the Spirit and knew that Mary was pregnant with the Lord. The same Lord that spoke to Mary through an angel is now growing inside her as a baby. Jesus is Lord. And so as we close now, the simple question casted to you, is he your Lord? It's not enough to just know how somebody else came to find out that Jesus is Lord. Is he your Lord? To believe Jesus is Lord is to be saved, with the language we often use, to be saved, which is to say that you have turned from your sin and become aware of your helplessness to restore yourself, and you have turned to Jesus by the Spirit opening up your eyes to that. In Acts chapter 16, when the jailer in Philippi asked Paul, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Paul said simply, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Salvation is not an outward action of being a good person. It's not going to church consistently and being nice and well thought of by the people around you. It is an inward turning from sin, a decision of repentance and a turning to faith, a decision of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And for those who have made that decision by God's grace, to believe Jesus is Lord leads to the power to be able to wait in peace. No matter what circumstances you are facing or have faced, you can live righteously before him, even if you have not gotten what you wanted. To believe Jesus is Lord means you can wait with thankfulness for all he has done because he knows you and his favor has looked upon you. To believe Jesus is Lord empowers you to wait with missional purpose and making him known and speaking courage and life into others, being the one that God uses in their story to turn things around. And finally, to believe Jesus is Lord empowers you to wait in confidence and live by his truth and not conform to the pressures and demands of the world. His name is John. Let's pray.
Father, we're so grateful for this woman, Elizabeth. Grateful for the power and resolve she has in many ways. We thank you for who she is. And especially grateful for how she models for us how to wait well. Because she leads us to your son, Jesus Christ, in every way. And a better understanding of her leads to a better understanding to Jesus as Lord, Lord. And so we pray that you would awaken faith in this place this morning for your namesake. We pray that you would strengthen faith in this place for your namesake. And that we would truly understand what it means for you to be with us. That you came in the flesh. That you dwell now in the spirit to lead us in every way. And it's your name we pray. Amen.